Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today we're going to get into it, kind of the bigger picture and kind of technical. Hope I don't lose you, but it's all relevant. So in case you've forgotten where this podcast got started because you've joined late and you're interested in keto and saw a keto naturopath and just jumped in, I would suggest going back to the beginning because that's where I covered more fundamental issues, how to start a ketogenic diet and so on and so forth. After about a year and a half of doing that, it's it's moved on. It's moved on to more going in deeper to issues that are relevant that have actionable information. So it's not just esoteric that I read a study and it said this and I read a study and it said this, but I do my labs and I work with people. And so these are the conclusions that come out of that. Initially, it was about me saving my life and saving my wife's life and going forward and getting our health back. How did we do that? And it wasn't that we didn't know. I was, I'm a naturopathic doctor. I had 20 years behind me. How did it all fall apart? There's a story to that. And if you like watching YouTube, you can uh, see me go into that, but I'll push that aside. So that's my explanation by saying this has been our journey and my topics that are important to me. And therefore, I share these topics to who, who's ever listening to you. And on that theme, it's not about me selling you something, right? Hey, you listen to this podcast. You either do or do not. I'm hoping I'm going to sell you on your own self-interest, that you need to start to become aware of some of the things I'm covering because it's in your self-interest. And if you're a parent with kids, it's in their self-interest that mom and or dad take care of themselves for their self-interest. And down it goes. So I i am not going to be getting into the issues of things like vaccines or so on and so forth, those are so invidious and so controversial, which is kind of a nothing word to me. It just invites an argument of of ignorance on both sides. And so I'm just pushing that aside. Yes, I have my opinions, but it's not for this podcast for sure. All right. But I want to start with something that's somewhat controversial. And there is a study that came out in the last six months. It's been sort of reviewed twice by two people I know on YouTube. And the study was called, well, I'm going to call this about reverse aging with food and supplements. Can you do that? If you can do that, how do we measure it? What does that mean? And so on. So we're going to go into that a little bit. I've done a three-part 
uh, YouTube presentation on it, and the third part has yet to come out, um, tying it together with other studies and what things they possibly could have done and what questions remain unanswered. So reversing aging with food and supplements. Seriously? So the name of the diet is called Potential Reversal of Epigenetic Age Using a Diet and Lifestyle Intervention. And it was in uh, last April, tax day, was in the Journal of Aging, which is interesting. It was covered twice. A guy named Thomas DeLauer, he sort of introduced it and then went on to other things. And then Dr. Perlmutter had an interview with uh, Dr. Carrie Fitzgerald, who's a naturopath. And um, they talked about the diet. Oh, it actually, it wasn't just a diet. The things that they did and how they measured. The cornerstone of this whole thing, of this study, is this concept of epigenetics. And epigenetics did not always exist in this world of science. It really evolved. And for those of you who have been listening to way back when we talked about the Dutch hunger, hunger uh, winter, in which for about six months, a large portion of the Dutch population were uh, boxed in by the Germans at the end of World War II, that they actually starved en masse. Not everybody died, some did, but um, they still were literate, still had a civilization, so they still saw their doctor and so on, but they were all collectively eating less and less to the point of nothing. And eventually they were saved. It was a very almost confined, large population experiment, if you will. Horrible experiment. But data was collected throughout that whole thing. And what's interesting is uh, a decade or two later, since there was all the documentation of you know, who lived and who died, but they found certain rates of schizophrenia and bipolar all sort of shot up through the roof. And you can say, well, of course, it's a horrible time and uh, you'll have a lot of abnormal or not very often seen disorders. True enough. But the question is, when you start starving an individual, a population, where do the wheels start coming off the car? What, what, are, the, what are the signs, measurable signs, that things are not going well? Well, they can start losing weight pretty quickly. They can start start having um, uh, inability to function normally. Call it activities of daily uh, um, activities of daily living. However, you want to address it, things start to fall apart. But if we kind of say, well, where does that start initially? It does start around the idea of methylation. We talked a lot about methylation, and certainly it's a more visual presented more visually on the YouTube's but a lot about methylation and that we do have a genetic predisposition individually that's a little bit different than the person to the left and right of us and even to our children. And these individuality, individual predispositions can set us up to be one of those in that situation of the Dutch hunger winter to be more quickly negatively affected and others to be less quickly negatively affected. So that's where these vulnerabilities, right? The the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Well, the weakest link are these predispositions. So when we all have a great diet that's really full of nutrients, well, it really doesn't matter. You know, we don't have much in the way of individual vulnerabilities because they're covered by that diet. But when the diet starts to disappear or become malnourished, like today, we have a 
a lot of calories, but not much in the way of nutrition for the for most of the population in the United States. This is true. They have this desire for processed foods, which is inducing a starvation, not by calories, but by nutrition. So where do the wheels start coming off the car? It's those same wheels as the Dutch hunger crisis. They had caloric deficiency and nutrient deficiency. We have, for most of our population, a nutrient deficiency. Talked about the chronic diseases going up. It's all the same picture. This is the new era, the new model of starvation in terms of nutrient poor and calorie rich. What do you what do you get? And you get all these aberrations. Okay, so going into methylation and went from Dutch hunger winter, and then we had the overcalyx study. So one, back to the Dutch hunger winter is what's really interesting is that they now have gone from the those survivors of that and how they survived and what would their subsequent post um, starvation period life like. We had children that were born into the during the starvation, those pregnancies that were overlapped with part of that starvation and were born subsequent. So we have a lot of different categories of exposure to the starvation. Were they in gestation? Were they born during? If it was six months, did they have most of the pregnancy in gestation? In utero was the exposure. So you now you have all those degrees. We have a lot of things to look at. Then you have the generation that was born to those survivors and those who were born so now you have the uh, the second generation, and now you have the children of those children and the children of those children. So you're up through about four generations from the actual time of 1944 to 45 winter for the Dutch hunger winter. And so what we found is going forward in time from that large population of people, it's a lot of abnormalities that were passed on. So this is where the birthplace of epigenetics starts. It's like, hmm, these these abnormalities that they were born to and or and developed in their early years because they they were born after the uh, that period but now it's been tracked one two three four generations out and so all that data is still there in fact researchers still go back to all those records and track back you know where did these where did these derangements happen and how were some of these derangements, epigenetic changes passed on to the children? First time it's ever happened. It's like, wow, this is, something's odd. Who knew that bad times could be passed on? There's a biblical reference to that, by the way. Um, And so now the overcalyx study was just the opposite. He's a person who grew up in Northern uh, Sweden. And what he did, he found people now and track them back to those who were born two, three, four generations ago. So he's starting with the the uh, third or fourth or fifth generation and going back. And what he discovered, only, um, oh, I forgot his last name. I've emailed him. But what he discovered is that those uh, children that were born that grew up, had their up, up to year nine males, they, up to year nine lived in a starvation period versus those who lived in a, a gluttonous period in which they had all the food, had very different outcomes in their subsequent children. Again, a, a, a genetic change was stamped and then passed on to subsequent generations. So this is now the second big cache of data. So that came out, even though the data was studied in the uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s, 
that wasn't really formalized into a a report and a study until uh, late nine, 1990s and early 2000s. So now we have two two things looking back. And then you had in 2003, Dr. Rend, Rendell um, Yertle at Duke. And what he did, he took these mice that were born blonde, yellow, and, and on normal mouse chow would get obese. So yellow mouse, they were meant to be yellow mice that became obese. That was, they were meant and they were genetically bred to be that way. So he gave these agouti mice, the yellow obese mice, methyl donors, which are primarily, we'll call them methyl uh, uh, B vitamins and other things. And he found that to nearly all of them, they were no longer yellow. They were their normal color they're supposed to be, which is a reddish brown. And they were no longer obese. They were normal, healthy mice. So then you go, whoa, methylation is an issue. So how did he do that? You know, these were genes that were supposed to work a certain way, but he now provided these nutrients, there were supplements in the food, that suddenly blocked those particular genes. And then he did another experiment with uh, uh, a phthalate, which is what you get from plastics, which is very toxic, and it's known to be a mutagen, right? Affect your genes. And he gave two groups, uh, those who didn't have anything other than the exposure to the phthalates and they developed cancer. And then others, he gave methyl donors and found that they did not get cancer. Hmm, methyl donors. Now the whole focus was on methyl donors. And I can tell you as a practicing naturopathic doctor that uh, back in the turn of the century, <laughs> 2000, which is about the time I pretty much started practicing, 90, graduated in 98. And um, now it's like, oh, I'll get methyl donors. We'll all be healthy. We'll be our healthiest methyl donors. Well, the concept then became, all right, you can methylate things that should have been methylated. And when you methylate a gene, this is, this is true, when you methylate a gene, you turn that gene off. So he gave... B vitamins and a few other things collectively called methyl donors, or and he gave these to the to the mice. So what did he do? He turned off those abnormal genes. Remember the mice, the agouti mice, were meant to be yellow and obese, and develop all sorts of cancers. So he prevented those genes from. Uh, he kept those genes when they're methylated; they're turned off. So he turned off the genes that were expressing themselves. He goes, well, in that sense, it was a good thing. And then with the phthalates, well, that sense, it was a good thing that, that it protected the mice from being affected by the phthalates. Well, then he did genistein, which is a, um, a phyto plant estrogen taken from soy. And so genistein is, is pretty strongly estrogenic, phytoestrogenic, not as strong as estrogen. But he gave estrogen to the agouti mice, and they also became normal. So now we're going, well, what is going on here? It's not just taking B vitamins. So that was 2003 and 2007 that those studies came on. So now we go forward in 2013, the idea of a biological clock. You know, how do we me measure biology? How do we measure the age of a person? They can, they, well, they can facially look to be a certain age. They can have certain uh, abilities, functions, right? Uh, 
And so that's kind of how we measure it. You know, how fast do they walk and so on and so forth? What do they look like? What's the color of their hair? Uh, what's their strength, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it got a little more, he put these concepts together and this guy named Dr. Steve Horvath, I think he was UCLA, came up with this thing called a methylation clock. And so now the concept that we're about to talk about a little bit today and probably subsequent podcasts is this idea of how can we tell how old somebody is? And um, some of you might already be familiar with telomeres, the length of our our chromosomes. You know, they they get shorter and shorter and shorter with time. That has its limitations in really representing uh, age and not age and so on. So it's kind of losing its vogue, but it did have some relevance. Well, this is different. It's This is now highly um, artificial intelligence and algorithmic application to massive amounts of data. And so they look at one's genome, right? Because the human genome has now been able to be put out there and now you can get it, get your copy and or an abbreviated copy, which is pretty much what I use when I work with people. That um, he would analyze these and they'd find, you know, to what degree were things methylated and to what degree were certain genes not methylated and look for very specific points. And you know, these are called uh, cytosine island CPGs, if you really want to know. So they lined up all the CPGs and said, all right, who's methylated, who's not? And they got this data flowing. And so they kind of have an appropriateness per age of how much methylated genes you should have and how many should not be methylated, right? So when you're, when you methylate something, you're, you're, you're pausing it. You're 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 not killing it. You're just putting it on a pause. It's not going to express itself. You're you're uh, acquiescing it. It's just going to sit there. So that's why you don't have teeth growing out of your toes or another ear in the middle of your knee. You know that's why. You know why is that? And embryology, how you are born and become human, has all to do with that turning on certain genes at a certain time and then turning it off later. So that mechanism, that control, if you will, of saying, okay, here we are in the big toe and these are the genes we need to be turned on. All these other genes need to be turned off, right? So when we say turned on, they are unmethylated. Turned off means they're methylated. So there is some sort of consensus, some sort of uh, um, omnipotent sort of ongoing sort of observational process that says these this is how it's going to work in this part of the body in this part of the metabolism in this part of the anatomy and so we now have this and this is his concept the horvath clock horvath methylation clock and these are now other people have sort of come up with different variations but the horvath clock is the one that's used mostly and it's not a it's not a test you're going to get at your doctor's anytime soon. It's expensive, and in the particular study that I just read you, you know they took the blood samples and they sent it to Yale, and Yale did its particular extractions and sent it to McGill and in Montreal, and then then the results got interpreted and sent over back to where the uh, study was taking place in Portland. So it's not much that. A uh, regular person can get, or certainly there's very few doctors even have a clue what this is. Uh, and yes, there's always some tests you can get on your own. I don't know what they cost, but probably my guess is in a thousand dollars. So, but anyway, so what they did is that they said, "All right, we're now going to apply Horvath's clock, and these clocks are called DNA MH, 
DNA M age clocks. So DNA methylation clocks, if you will. All right, then. So now they applied this and they said, you know, why don't we, there have been two, a couple other studies before done with, uh, one did uh, uh, DHEA, which is kind of a surrogate for growth hormone and metformin to see if they would change a before and after of the appropriate, you know, of methylation. Did they increase or decrease and so on? Okay, so what these guys did in this particular test is that they took an altogether different approach. And the approach was to use medicine, use food as I medicine. How's that for something different? For a naturopathic approach, right? Uh, food as I medicine. So they were more specific and they outlined exactly what, you know, this, these are the food choices you could have. And um, they're big on liver, big on eggs. You have egg yolks, you have liver. You know, you could live on that. If you had nothing else, you'd have completely nutrition between, between those two things. So that was, liver has kind of resorted to be the only organ meat humans eat nowadays, unless you are exceptional and you go out and you have your, you know, you have the brain and the spleen and all these other parts of the animal. 99.999% of the people in the United States do not have organs. Even though here in New Bern, North Carolina, I could go over to a Piggly Wiggly and uh, it's a grocery store that came out of World War One, by the way, uh, Piggly Wiggly, and see all the variations of Southern food in the terms of chitlins, which are intestines, uh, pork brain. Uh, certainly, you get the pickles, pickled pig's feet, and it goes on and on and on. You can get all those things still canned and some not canned, and uh, there's a big following for that. So. To the study, so they now have this method. They have this test they can do, and they say, "All right, you're going to do liver and eggs." And they have a list of vegetables that you can have, and I'll get into that in a second. And you're going to do this really for nine weeks, and we're going to measure your blood at the beginning, and we're measure your blood in the last week. And so, what were the results? And first of all, they did um, men only, 50 to 72, so uh, it's a 12-year period of age, and they found that they reduced by the DNA M age clock, Horvath clock, they reduced everybody's age collectively as an average, just about two years, 1.96. Well, that was pretty neat. And uh, not everybody was the same. As some people actually gained some years. Um, and I'm just reading from this too. It says, here we go. Um, so the genome-wide genome DNA methylation analysis was conducted on saliva samples using this particular company's aluminum methylation epic array and was calculated using the online Horvath clock, DNA M clock. Uh, the diet and lifestyle treatment was associated with a 3.2 plus years decrease in DNA, methyl DNA age compared to controls. The DNA MH of those in the treatment group decreased by just about two years by the end of the program compared with individuals at the beginning with a strong trend towards significance, changes in blood markers, blah, blah, blah. So that's interesting. So they've actually created a change and they scaled out the change. And I'm just going to get to that is that they show, you know, there's a line within with age where you started and age methylation age where you started and methylation age where you 
ended. And you'll find out if you got younger or not and what side of the graph you're on. So on the average it was just about two years and most were younger, some are actually older. So you have to ask the question, well, what's the difference? I mean, that's, that's where I come when you see data like this, like, well, what's the difference? It's neat, there was a collective move to being younger, but not with everybody. Some people even got older. One person, 48, he uh, they started, since it was he, he started at about 48, I'm just looking at the graph, and he ended up at about 58. So he gained 10 years, not great. You know, if he kept on going for another couple of weeks, <laughs> would he be, you know, if he did it another month, would he aged out, <laughs> so to say? Anyway, um, that's the question that I find with that data. What's the difference? And I find it's fascinating, though, that they, you know, you 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 have this idea we're going to me- we're going to measure your methylated genes and measure your unmethylated genes and see if the ratios between those two are age appropriate. This is kind of what we're talking about. So why this study was different, it didn't rely on supplements. In essence, I would say arguably it didn't rely on any supplements. I can show you what they did. And that they were very, they, they scanned through the previous literature and they said, you know, part of the problem is that you can negatively affect somebody's age, like they did actually in this study as well, by giving them folic acid as opposed to folate. Folate is something you get, it's a form of folic acid, I hate to use these words too interchangeably, but folate um, is something that comes from food. Folic acid is a s- synthetic. And so often when you give synthetic folate, folic acid, you create a problem. And sure enough, there's a number of studies that show that, both some studies from Norway, and um, they show relative to to uh, prostate cancer and show that there's one that was really interesting that basically said that it's the difference between folate, the food, folate in food, versus the synth- uh, synthetic, the folic acid, and said, in contrast, a dietary folate intake from food was found to be inversely associated with uh, bladder cancer progression in a study that also found a higher occurrence for folic acid intake. So they're saying folate, things improve, folic acid, it doesn't. And it said, um, folate intake was inversely associated with prostate cancer risk. Folate, inversely associated, meaning the higher the folate from food, the lower the prostate cancer risk. In a trial that subsequently identified an increased risk of prostate cancer in the treatment arm that received folic acid at one milligram per day for 10 years. That's that's a pretty long study. You know, to be able to be that loyal to take one milligram. Anyway, um, also relevant is adding dietary supplements of folic acid, vitamin B6, vitamin B12, to a vitamin D plus calcium. They're saying that particular combination, synthetic, increased biological aging during a one-year intervention. So it's not all peaches and cream, as they say. There's problems. So it's not just, hey, take supplements. Just like we learned with Randy Yertles, Dr. Yertles is like, yeah, there was, look what he did. He he changed the agouti mouse. But at the same time, there's this thing called genistine that had the same effect, more or less. So it's, it's on a per-situation basis in this world of epigenetics. 
So I looked into conflict of interest, and um, there's a, a, a moderate conflict of interest, so it just means you have to declare it. So the two authors declare that they use the intervention in this program in their clinical practice, and they're named in a related patent application. So the point, uh, when you do a study like this, you have to say, who's going to benefit from the study? Nobody just does a study on humanity, and we're going to help humanity by doing the study. It's pretty much the same in the pharmaceutical industry. They'll go, here's the thing we're using, here's the study we did, here's the benefit we found, and you can use that stuff too and get the benefit we found as well. So it's the same model for doing a study that here's two supplements they use was a probiotic with this very specific strain of a probiotic, one particular, and their one other supplement was a powdered drink that was primarily phytonutrients. And why I think this study is really pretty amazing is that, you know, that's it. They didn't give you all these B vitamins. They didn't do it. Randy Yertle did. There's no, they, they made the food be the methyl donors. So the liver and egg yolk together, that's it. Everything you need. However, they did add a vegetarian part, which I'll get into in a second, that completed it. You know, they, so they had complete nutrition as measured, in my view, on chronometer. And so I got to verify that, both by fats and so on and so forth. They're, they're very heavy in the omega-6, so that's a problem. But, however, they got good results. And so this particular phytonutrient mix was not so much a methyl donor, but in a methyl, methylation adapter. What that means is, now that I told you about, you know, the, this group started off with, or, or started off as a generic sort of target of people in that age bracket, as you get older, you know, the methylation problem starts, you get things are methylated that shouldn't be methylated and things that are not methylated that end up getting methylated. And so how do you bring that back to a healthy ratio of methylated and unmethylated? That's what this methyl adapter does. That's pretty cool. So that was their thinking. And I think that they achieved that saying that, you know, that you, you brought, you, you created a better ratio. Therefore you gave them a younger result, right? They're now by methylation, by the methylation clock, they are now younger on average. Okay. So let me skip down to skip down to the supplements for a second. Here we go. And in the supplements, what they have is, you know, parsley, spinach, cauliflower, so on and so forth. So pretty interesting. And they put milk thistle and turmeric in there, some good stuff. But for the most part, it's uh, a phyto, um, phytonutrient drink. And um, we're assuming, we can't point to anything. There's no absolute clarity. We're assuming that Whatever they did, all these variables brought that ratio back together. Was it the one uh, probiotic, which is the plantarium um, strain? Maybe, maybe yes. Maybe putting all these things together. But what they offered, what their guidelines were in terms of eating, I told you about the liver and the eggs. They had to have 11 ounces of liver per week. Um, they had to have seven to 10 eggs per week, uh, omega-3 enriched. And um, for the veggies, the veggies, this is how they, they worded it. They had two cups of dark green leafy vegetables. So it's chopped, packed, Swiss chard, um, collards, spinach, dandelions, mustard greens, two cups, cruciferous vegetables, uh, three cups of colorful vegetables, uh, 
one to two medium beets, four tablespoons of pumpkin seeds or pumpkin seed butter, four tablespoons of sunflower seeds or sunflower butter, and then the methylation adaptogens is what they called that product. And away they went. So they had to do that. They made sure that everybody slept, you know, that they were required to sleep uh, seven hours a day. They were required to do uh, go to 30 minutes of exercise five days a week. And they did a certain breathing technique. And um, you can read about that. There's a, a link I'll put into the show notes if you really want to get in and rip it apart. But primarily, it was the dietary intervention, I think, was profound. And that they had liver and egg yolks, things that most people don't have anymore. And it's the you know, this is all we have. This is for most of us, if we have liver, that's the only organ meat we have. Whereas a generation ago or two generations ago, they had lots of organ meat. They had tripe, they had brain, they had spleen, they had kidney, they had lung, and we just have liver. So it's getting less and less. And there's even a anti-meat sort of um, movement afoot, so to say. Okay, so was their outcome luck or was it a well-planned study? I think that, and here's how I use it, I said, could the results be due to addressing their individual nutrient deficiencies only? In other words, he had 18 people and they all had different nutrient deficiencies. Those who had the worst would have the, the greatest change, right? And so I gave an analogy of if you find somebody dying of thirst in the desert and you give that person water for an hour, a day, a week, a month, you bring them back to full life, you clearly have addressed their most important deficiencies. Agreed. Well, and you've certainly increased, and I left this out, what's called lifespan versus health span. And your, your health span is all the number of years and days that you are healthy, but your lifespan is when you born and die, and they are not the same thing. In the United States, by the way, the average health span is 63 years. The average lifespan, we're, we're genderless here, is 79. So that means the average American has 16 years of being enfeebled before they die from their 63 to 79. So can you change that? What if we all made it to 79, 100% healthy? What if while getting healthier longer, we made it to 100? So there's this is increasing your health span, which will also more than likely increase your lifespan. So the idea of giving this person dying of thirst in the desert water, that would be something that immediately changed its health span, right? It was going to, he or she was going to die without that water. You gave them the thing that was necessary. You've addressed their deficiency. And Shazam, they lived longer. How much longer? Probably, who knows what happened in the next week, but you get the point, addressing a deficiency. So what was their what was their diet of these individuals before the study compared to the study? Um, was it by comparison a more nutritionally complete diet than what they had been doing? Or is this exactly the point? Most of us are so nutrient deficient, and I say refer back to the whole... Um, hellaciously increasing rates of chronic disease in the United States up to over 60% now. And it didn't, 35, 1935 was 7.5%. So we are all becoming progressively more and more nutrient deficient. So is this study simply pulling out our fellow Americans that are equally nutrient deficient 
and addressing them to an extent, and of course they got better. And was that exactly the point? And there's nothing wrong with saying it that way. In other words, by addressing your nutrient deficiencies is the truth they're putting on the table that it will make you younger. If you address your nutrient deficiencies, not with hypervigilance, but in a whole food, common sense way, let food be your medicine kind of thing, that that would, in essence, address a degree of epigenetic aging and make you epigenetically younger. Okay. So meaning that increase their health span by setting their epigenetic clock back. There was uh, an interesting study that I brought in here to about exercise, and it shows those who are you know, triathletes who are trained individuals all the way up to the age of 80, that their cardio, cardiovascular abilities were that of a 50-year-old, about 30, somebody 30 or younger. Specifically, the comparison goes like this. Those who are well-trained uh, at 80 equaled a sedentary person's cardiorespiratory VO2 max ability to age 50, and at age 50, back to age 20. That's amazing. It's a big difference. Well, so too is the epigenetic clock like that. If you take care of these various factors, and exercise, by the way, kind of has nothing to do with a nutrient deficiency, but if you're exercise deficient, you need to have exercise on a regular basis. It actually helps with methylation, helps with a lot of things, helps with glutathione. We've talked about glutathione. You exercise, you actually get more glutathione. It's obviously within limits. You don't overdo it, but you have to, it has to be part of your regime. So if you addressed all these known factors that we have, nutrient, exercise, sleep, et cetera, how would that, you know, how long would you live? Probably a lot longer. You still are limited to the genes you have, but if you're giving your body what it needs epigenetically, that's fine. You know, we're giving all the nutrition and we're having a, a quote unquote, a healthy life. You will be younger or you will be aging a far more slowly than somebody who doesn't. And we know this to be true. If you know anybody who smokes or is a smoker and you've known them, known them over a period of decades, you realize, gosh, look what their skin is like. You know, they look a lot, a lot older than maybe you if you're a non-smoker or than a non-smoker generally in comparison. So it is a big deal. So why are we looking at this? Does this seem esoteric? Does this seem, you know, uh, kind of contemplating our navel kind of thing? No, not at all. The degree that we can define aging, which is this losing control of these methylation ratios, right? What should be methylated? What shouldn't be methylated? And bringing it back to a healthier ratio is bringing our life back in balance, for one. Oh, that's very... Uh, that's very oriental in that perspective. They're always about balance, balancing these things. And that will make you healthier. But also you can look at on the national level, it means our medical costs are a lot less. On a personal level, our medical costs are a lot less. Also on the personal level, our emotional well-being is a lot more. So we've just come through a year and a half to nearly two years of pandemic. And we've had all-time high, absolutely all-time high for overdose addictions. We've had an all-time high for suicide rates. We've had increased rates of schizophrenia, bipolar, and obsessive compulsor, compulsive disease. These are neurological mental illnesses. So these are the wheels that come off the car 
when we stop having what we need to have, which is nutrition and other variables in our lifestyle. And this is what this study shows, that they didn't give supplements per se. They gave something that were methylation adapters, and they gave something that arguably would help you digest a little more because it's really never about what you eat. You have to have to eat something to derive nutrition from it, but it's your ability to digest what you eat that gives you nutrition. So on that, I'm going to let you go until next week. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp again for a brief reminder of something I completely forget to do at the end of every episode. You've heard me talk long enough and many different episodes, but what I would love you to do, and many of you have already done this, I just want to reinforce this particular behavior, which is to send me your questions. Send me your questions and anything you have about keto. If there's something that I don't know, I will look it up. And if it's something that intrigues me, I will probably make an episode, uh, a podcast about that particular topic. So what you need to do is to send me your questions at drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. So that's D-R-G-O-L-D-K-A-M-P at K-E-T-O-N-A-T-U-R-O. P-A-T-H.com, Dr. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Feel free to join our Facebook group, which is also ketonaturopath.com. That's been growing lately. You also have to answer a questionnaire should you cho- choose to join. And I don't ask for your email. I ask that you follow our terms. I try to avoid uh, advertising and uh, the obvious interruptions of a, just a good Facebook group. So hope to see you at one place or other. Please send me your questions and uh, look forward to talking to you and getting to know you. Take care.